what I would like to um, help us look at this morning is what does this mean to be baptized by the Spirit? There is a school of thought out there, and you've maybe heard of it, where there is the idea that we are baptized with water, we experience water baptism, and then at some point subsequent to that baptism, we will experience what is called the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And generally people that espouse to this, um, this um, idea uh, would also uh, be somewhat convinced that this baptism of the Holy Spirit would be um, accompanied with specific signs and especially the speaking of tongues. If that isn't exactly what is believed, there is somewhat of a modified belief that um, indeed the, uh, the infilling of the Holy Spirit would uh, come with some dramatic experience, if, if nothing else, if not tongues. I would like to just, to just look at, again, um, some specific examples in Acts in, in depth here and see if, if we can find our way through, um, through these ideas, I guess. And, and, I, and I'll be forthright with you. I'm, I'm coming from the premise that that is not necessarily true with the emphasis on necessarily. And I will, um, I will I'll, you have to wait to the end to know why I said that, okay? So turn to Acts 1, if you will. And we're going to read the first nine verses just to get us going here. Acts 1. The former treatise have I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach. Until the day in which he was taken up, after that he, through the Holy Ghost, had given commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom also he showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs, being seen of them forty days, and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And being assembled together with them, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which, saith he, ye have heard of me. For John truly baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. When they therefore were come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know the times of the seasons which the Father hath given, hath put in his own power, but you shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. And when he had spoken these things, while they beheld, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. So let's just uh, go through these nine verses quickly and see what we can learn uh, coming right out of the gate into the book of Acts here about the Holy Spirit. The first thing we can learn is that in verse 2, we can conclude that Jesus' teachings and commandments were given through the Holy Spirit and that the Holy Spirit will never contradict what Jesus said. It will only affirm it. So we conclude that in, in the second verse of the book of Acts, Chapter 1, we can conclude that anything we read in the Gospels that specifically Jesus said, even today in 2017, the Holy Spirit will never come and say, no, not so much. Because the, it says specifically 
that through the Holy Spirit the commandments were given by Jesus. So that's going to stay the same. So we can, we can put that to rest. Jesus also told the disciples that they should wait for the promise of the Father in Jerusalem in verse 4. Now there's no indication that they knew what to look for or how this would happen or what it would look like. He just said, you stand in Jerusalem and you wait for the promise. That's what they're waiting for, a promise. But they don't know what, exactly how, how they will know when this takes place. It's interesting that in Luke 24, 49, which is somewhat uh, a similar account of what's taking place here, Jesus again says that I will send the promise of the Father upon you, but tarry in Jerusalem until you be endued with power. Okay, so they have that, that much they know too, that this is going to be an event of power. In Acts, uh, or in verse 5 here, it talks about how that it's going to be distinct from John's baptism because John baptized with water, but you'll be baptized with the Holy Ghost, and he says it's going to be shortly. You won't have to wait long in Jerusalem. It'll, it'll be something that happens not many days hence. So they knew it was going to happen shortly. And then again in verse 8, he, he affirms again that they will receive power. And he says, after you receive this power, you will be witnesses for me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. Now, what he told them is the power would enable them to be witnesses. All right, so we have to step back and say, well, what is a witness? And, and I know that uh, probably all of, or most if not all of you know, that the word witness as used in the New Testament is the word that we would use for martyr, okay? So he's saying, I'm going to give you power, and the power that you have will enable you to endure the persecution that you will face um, that goes along with this. What he tells them here dovetails very nicely with what John the Baptist had testified over and over again when he was baptizing. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all three of those Gospels, it is recorded that John said, you will be baptized with the Holy Ghost by Jesus at some point hence, and he says you will be baptized with fire. He, he, always, he says it's going to be with Holy Ghost, the Holy Ghost and with fire. So what does John mean when he says you will be baptized with fire? How, why does this go with the Holy Spirit baptism? I'll give you two possible understandings of this. If you read in the in real early church history, and even in um, somewhat more contemporary church history, i.e. the 1500s, you will find that the conclusion of many... Um, of the true church of that day and those days that they believed that the baptism with, with a fire was what they considered a third baptism and that was the, the literal baptism of being burned for your faith or whatever, whatever, the, whatever means of execution was actually used but it was, the, it was martyrdom they, they, they interpreted it that way that, the, that the, fire, the baptism of fire was actually the baptism of martyrdom um, that was believed by many many churchmen um, true churchmen in those days I would also suggest perhaps it could mean another thing and I'll leave this for you to, 
to ponder. But perhaps the Holy Ghost baptism, or the, the, um, the fire part, could be the zeal that is instilled in a person's heart whenever he is indeed baptized with the Holy Spirit. He has that burning zeal to do the, the work of the Lord. It's somewhat similar to what Jeremiah experienced when he decided one day, he said, you know, I'm not going to speak what God tells me to speak anymore. He said, I'm not going to make mention of him. It's getting me a lot of grief, and I'm not going to go there anymore. But, so he said, I, I was quiet for a while, but he said, the word was in my heart as a burning fire shut up on my bones, and I was weary of forbearing, and I could not stay. Finally, it just had to come out. He couldn't take it anymore. He had to say what God wanted him to say. Jesus also um, experienced some of the zeal in John 2.15 whenever he took off, when he took out that scourge and he cleaned the temple, it said that the disciples watched him and they remembered that it said the zeal of thine house has eaten me up. I think that's two examples of zeal. And I would say that when a person is baptized with the Holy Spirit, he will experience at least that zeal to some degree. Okay, so now let's turn to Acts 2, and we're going to look at the actual outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. I wish I had time to read this, but I'm not going to take the time. We're just going to go down through these verses And we're going to pick out some of the things that I think are important. So in verse 1, we find the disciples um, and the company that were with them. It was 120 of them, we know this. And um, they're waiting there, and it says they were all of one accord in one place. So they were doing exactly what Jesus told them to do. He said, wait in Jerusalem. They did that. They were waiting in Jerusalem for this promise. And then in verse 2 and 3, we have this phenomenon where we have the sound of wind. It doesn't say it's actually wind. It says it's the sound of wind. And it says something that appears like fire. And again, I, I, would, uh, I would guess it was fire, but it says it appeared like fire. It doesn't say it necessarily was fire. And I would be interested to know if this is exactly what the disciples were expecting. I, I would dare say probably not. Uh, this probably wasn't what they were expecting to experience. And then in verse 4, we had the, the third thing that happened. And it says, They were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Many times we want, to, we want to just stop and talk about the tongues. But I would like to emphasize the phrase after the word tongues. As the Spirit gave them utterance. I think it's as significant here that the Spirit gave them the utterance. And if you would look up the word utterance in, a, in the Greek dictionary, it means to speak forth plainly, and it gives the idea of a delivery that is filled with passion. All right? There's two other times in the New Testament that the word uh, utterance is translated in a different way, but I, I want to just point them out to you. It was in um, in Acts. Oh, I'm sorry. Let's back up. In verse 14, there in the same chapter, Acts 2.14, the exact same chapter we're in, it says that Peter, standing up with the eleven, lifted up his voice. Okay, so that lifted up his voice, that phrase there, is the same word as we go back to verse um, 
for is the same word as utterance. Okay, so there it gives no indication that um, Peter is necessarily speaking with a strange tongue. One other time that it is it is mentioned in the Bible is uh, in Acts twenty six twenty five, and and I think that might have even been mentioned by Kenny this morning, where Paul stands before Festus, and Festus accuses Paul of um, being mad. He said, Paul, you're, you're mad. And Paul says, uh, I'm not mad. He said, but I speak forth the words of truth and soberness. Okay? That speak forth is the exact same word as utterance here in verse 4. So what can we deduct from this little word study? I would suggest that the speaking of tongues here was something that made real sense to a lot of people. They were speaking forth plainly, and they were speaking with passion. Although, perhaps, um, we all heard it a little different. It was plain. It was clear. It wasn't gibberish. That's the point I'd like to make. It was not some sort of gibberish that nobody knew what what was being talked or what was being said. All right, so verse 6, let's move on. Verse 6, And now when this was noised abroad, the multitude came together, they were confounded, because everyone heard them speak in his own language. So this phenomenon did, um, did produce a bewildered multitude. That, that much we know. They were a bit confused by what was taking place. But it's interesting in verses 11, 12, and 13, um, some say we hear wonderful words from God. They, they were suited with what was happening. They were, they were being blessed. And some mock and accuse of drunkenness. So it had differing effects on different people how you perceived this particular phenomenon. Then in verses 17 to 21, Peter stands up and uh, he says, What you're hearing today is the fulfillment of the prophecy of Joel. And he goes on and he reads this prophecy. And he said, what you're seeing here today is, is, this, is the fulfillment of this prophecy. And then he launches into a sermon in verse 37. And it convicts the audience and they beg for an answer to their conviction. They say, Peter, what do we need to do to be saved? What, what, would, be your, um, what would be your advice? So in verse 38 then, Peter says, Repent, be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus for the remission of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Then in verse 39, he goes, And this promise is to you. He's speaking to the audience. He said, It's to you. He said, It is to your children. Your children are going to experience this too. And he says, Everyone that calls on the name of Jesus will experience the exact same thing. The disciples here, the 120, had just hours previous to this, or maybe minutes, I'm not sure how much time elapsed, but a, a small amount of time, had just received this, holy, this gift of the Holy Spirit, and now Peter is confident that anybody that calls on Jesus can receive that same gift. He said, it's not exclusive to the 120 here. You folks can have it as well. And so, that's exactly what happens. The... Um, it, it appears that the, the 3,000, there's 3,000 souls here that uh, did just that. They repented, they received Jesus and the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now I'd like to go back a little bit and learn 
learn and observe from the two distinct groups here we have, the 120 and the 3,000. So there's two, two groups here that receive the Holy Spirit, and I'd like to just see what we can learn uh, from them. So in the first group, let's understand that that 120 were already disciples of Jesus. They were believers. They were already saved people, if you will. Okay, They were literally obeying the command of Jesus to wait in Jerusalem. That, that was who this group of people were. They had the unique experience of being saved for a period of time and yet not have to receive the Holy Spirit. That, it was just the way it was. it was. They were doing exactly what Jesus had commanded them. This phenomenon has never been repeated since. Jesus has never told anybody else to wait in Jerusalem for a few days, a short time, and then they're going to receive this power. This chapter is closed. It has never been opened again. It won't be. It can't be. It is very unique. Whereas the second group were not regenerate people when they heard uh, Peter speaking. They were the same people that were mocking back in verses 12 and 13. And they were doubting and they were making fun of, of what was happening. And Peter even says in verse 23, he says, you guys are the ones that, de- that delivered up Jesus to be crucified. That, that's you. That's who you, that you, you. You're the ones. And in verse 37, his sermon no doubt did what it needed to do. And it was by the Holy Spirit that I believe these people in verse 37 were pricked in their hearts. They said, Peter, we really feel bad. What should we do? What should we do? I believe here this is a, the first instance we have of the Holy Spirit doing exactly what Jesus said it would do when he said, when the Spirit comes, it will convict the world of righteousness, of sin, and of the judgment to come. These people knew they were on the wrong side of history, if you will. And they wanted to get, make sure they got on the right side. So in verse 41 then, It says, um, after in verse 40, it says that um, Peter exhorted them with many other words, and he said, Save yourselves from this untoward generation. And then, in verse 41, they gladly received the word, they were baptized, and that day there was added to the the church 3,000 souls. So now, bear with me a bit, let's go back and consider the prophecy that that Peter says that this day was a fulfillment of. If we go back to um, verses 16, let's start at 16. But this is that which was spoken of by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, saith God, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, your old men shall dream dreams, and all my servants and all my handmaidens I will pour out in those days of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and in signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be darkened in, shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and notable day of the Lord. I'm sorry, before that great and notable day of the Lord come. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. All right, so this is the prophecy of Joel. That's verbatim out of the book of Joel. Now, I would like to just ask you a question. Is this exactly what happened? Did the, did the, did this, did the sun turn to blood? Did the, um, 
Did we have uh, vapors of smoke? Did the moon, or I'm sorry, the moon turn to blood and the sun to darkness? Um, the point I would like to make here is that what actually transpired, the, the, the likeness of fire, the wind, and the speaking of tongues, isn't necessarily prophesied in the book of Joel. But Peter was receptive or understanding enough that he, he knew that what they had just experienced was indeed a fulfillment of that prophecy. It's interesting to me that, that it says um, in verse 18, it says, And all my servants and handmaidens, I will pour out my spirit in those days. And what does it say that those servants and handmaidens shall do? They shall prophesy. It says they shall prophesy. The word prophesy there means to speak under divine influence. It has, a, again, a very similar meaning to the meaning in verse 3 of the word utterance. All right? So, indeed, there was a fulfillment here of prophecy. Those, the, the folks today, Peter and the, and the other 120, were indeed prophesying. It, happened, it so happened that they did it in tongues in the, at this particular event. They were speaking through, they were speaking the word under divine influence. Now it's important, I think it's very important that we, that we make this point. The 120 or the 3,000 here in this particular um, occasion did not ask for or expect or ever promised what they got. All they were, all they were told to do was wait in Jerusalem for the promise they didn't know what it was going to be. They took what they got, the 120 and the 3,000. All right, so now how about the 3,000? Let's go back to them now for a, for a minute. What kind of evidence do we have that the 3,000 indeed received the Holy Spirit? Do you suppose they felt slighted that they didn't speak with tongues? or that fire and wind didn't show up whenever the uh, Holy Spirit was poured out on them? Was there any evidence that the Holy Spirit was received by this, these 3,000? I'm going to suggest that there was. If we look in verses 41 to 47, we have what took place when these 3,000 were added to the, um, to the church. In verse 42, it says that the word was gladly received. They just really enjoyed being taught from God's word. Uh, is that not an um, evidence of a person that's filled with the Holy Spirit? They love to be taught. They, they enjoy it. It's like, bring it on. We want to know more. They're around the teaching of the word. They enjoy it. It says in verse 42 that they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, in fellowship, in breaking of bread, and in prayers. So what about, um, what about these four things? Well, I'm going to suggest to you that perhaps the fact that they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, which, by the way, uh, would have been exactly Jesus' teachings. I'm sure this is what the apostles were teaching. Um, it says they, they, they loved it. They, they, these people became... Instead of proud people that were resisting Jesus and crucifying Jesus and making all manner of trouble for the disciples, they now turned into very submissive people. The very people that they couldn't stand just days before, 
they're now submissive to. These people enjoyed being taught by these apostles. And it said they, they took their words and they continued steadfastly in it. It said that they continued steadfastly in fellowship. Um, suddenly, it didn't matter what part of the country you came from, uh, you were my brother. And I really liked being around you. And even though you may have uh, been my enemy just hours previous, you're now my friend. And we're going to have fellowship together. And this is going to be a, a wonderful thing. How about the breaking of bread? Um, indeed, nobody knows whether this means a celebration of, um, of communion or whether this just simply means breaking bread like Paul did in our Sunday school lesson today, uh, just simply having, having dinner together, you know. But either way, um, again, I think it's an expression of a changed person that, um, you know what, my bread is your bread. Uh, we're, we're together in this thing. We're, we're, a, we're a unit. And then in verse 4, or I'm sorry, the fourth thing in, um, that it says there in 42, it says they continued in prayer. And again, uh, without the aid of the Holy Spirit, uh, none of us will long continue in prayer. That is indeed a gift of the Spirit. And then there's, uh, there's the very uh, unique uh, happening in the last uh, three verses, three, four verses there, where it said they had all things in common, they sold the possessions, parted to every man as they needed, and they just continued with gladness and singleness of heart. You have this wonderful account here of people that were completely unselfish, completely. All selfishness was gone. They said, you know, I don't even need this farm anymore. I don't, I, I don't need, you know, whatever it is, I, I'm just going to sell it, and we're just going to pass things around here, and we're just going to have all things in common. And uh, again, it's it's... Only the Holy Spirit can work that in a person's life, to become that unselfish and that giving. Um, incredible. I'm going to suggest to you that a lesson we can learn from this is that a sign of the Holy Spirit in a person's life or a changed heart does not necessarily, all right, does not need tongues to confirm it. It doesn't. It just absolutely doesn't. To turn a man from a selfish, <clears throat> self-centered person into a generous, God-fearing, loving person is proof positive that something very supernatural has happened. He turns from hatred to love, from pride to submission, from having an unteachable spirit to having a teachable spirit, from an individualistic person to one who absolutely loves the fellowship of the saints. Listen. That is incredibly proof, incredible proof, that the Holy Spirit has done something in a person's heart. Now, the question needs to be asked. Why is it then that people are not equally fascinated by an unselfish heart as they are in speaking with tongues? Why is it? Why is it that we all want to hear someone speak? Well, I don't know if we all do, but we'd be fascinated with that, right? But, I mean, if Gary sells his farm and gives the money away, that's foolish, right? Okay, here, here's, here's the point I would like you to think about. A carnal heart and a carnal mind can appreciate a demonstration of something extremely supernatural. Even Herod, whenever he heard Jesus was coming his direction, he's like, great, I always did want to see a miracle. Bring it on, I want to see him. Well, then Jesus didn't do his miracle. 
But Herod was a very carnal, evil person. But he could appreciate a good miracle if he could have, if he could have witnessed it. There's something about this supernatural that we're fascinated with. Even the most carnal, sinful person could be fascinated with that. Whereas somebody with an unselfish heart, a teachable spirit, submissive, um, humble. How about those? How about those attributes? A carnal mind cannot appreciate that. An evil person will not appreciate that. It appears foolish. And it actually cuts the flesh. You know, if a person has the opportunity to speak in tongues, there could be an opportunity for, for pride in that. There could be. I'm um, not, not saying it would have to be, but there could be. Um, whenever I start giving things away, and I start submitting to my brother, and I start uh, doing these things that, are, again, are, are actually proof of the Holy Spirit, that cuts. That's hard. That's difficult. That's not really approved of by my flesh. And yet that is proof that the Holy Spirit has done something in our lives. All right. Let's explore a few other um, examples in the book of Acts where the baptism of the Holy Spirit was separated from water baptism and either confirmed by tongues or some other manner in the setting that it transpired. We have a few of these. We have the Samaritan believers in Acts 8, and I'm, I'm not going to turn to these and necessarily read, but I'm just going to give them to you, and if you want to read these at a later time, that would be a good exercise. But in Acts 8, we have these Samaritan leader, or believers in verses 5 to 25. Because of the persecution, the disciples are dispersed um, from Jerusalem, and Philip goes up and preaches to the Samaritans, and um, they believe, they, they accept the gospel, and they are baptized. So then in verse 14, we have the, uh, the believers in Jerusalem hearing about this, and they said, you know, we're going to send Peter and John up there to just confirm that this actually happened. And it seems that um, perhaps the reason for this was that, as you well know, that the Samaritans and the Jews had great strife. They didn't have nothing to do with each other. And it was probably fairly difficult for these uh, Jewish people in Jerusalem to actually get their hands around the fact that these people in Samaria had actually received the gospel and they were believers just like they were. And they're like, you know, Peter and John got credibility. Let's send them up there and just confirm that this is, this is legitimate. So in uh, verses 15 to 17 there, we have Peter and John meeting with these people and it says they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, it does not say that they speak in tongue, spoke in tongues, but in some way this was very recognizable and very apparent that something had happened to these people because Simon, who was following them around that day, said, hey, I'd like to be able to do that too. I'd like to be able to lay hands on people and they'd receive the Holy Spirit. Could I get this gift too? And you remember Peter rebuts him pretty profoundly and says, you know, none of this business. You, uh, you're full of the devil and bitterness, and I forget what all he said, but he said, you, just, you don't have the right idea, Simon. But anyway, it was very, very, it's very interesting that in some unique way, and, and perhaps it was tongues. It doesn't say that it was, so we can't say for sure that it was, but in some way it was for sure that these people um, had received the Holy Spirit. Now, it was subsequent to Philip's preaching of the gospel and them believing. 
But it wasn't because Philip's teaching was faulty. Uh, he later witnessed and preached to the eunuch, and the eunuch didn't have to have Peter and John come and, and uh, you know, lay hands on him to receive the Holy Spirit, apparently. So um, this was just the way it played out here. And I think it was, it was so that Peter and John could come back to Jerusalem and say, yes, indeed, the Samaritans receive the Holy Spirit. We are witnesses of it. Lay it to rest. These people are true followers of Jesus. A very similar thing happens in Acts 10 whenever Peter preaches to Cornelius. Um, <clears throat> you, you know the whole, that whole um, story there. But here's what he says to Cornelius in verse 43. He says, To him give all the prophets witness, and through his name whosoever believeth in him shall receive remission of sins. Then, while Peter yet spake these words, the Holy Spirit fell on them which heard the word. And they of the circumcision which believed were astonished, as many as came with Peter, because that on the Gentiles also was poured out the gift of the Holy Ghost. For they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. Then answered Peter, Can any man forbid water that these should not be baptized, which have received the Holy Ghost as well as we? So I find it... Well, then, I just want to finish off with this. Later in Acts 15... Peter insists that the experience that, was a, that Cornelius and his household had there was the exact same thing they experienced in, the, in that room that day in, in uh, Acts 2. And he says this in verse 8 of chapter 15, And God, which knoweth the hearts, bear them witness, giving them the Holy Ghost, even as he did to us, and put no difference between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. There's a few things that are unique about this setting. The first one that's very unique is that the Holy Spirit fell on these people and they spoke in tongues before they were baptized. So that gets things a little flipped around. We don't have a subsequent baptism of the Holy Spirit. We have an event that happens before the baptism. So that's very unique. If there's any lessons we can, we can learn from this, um, we can learn a few. Number one, baptism is it necessarily the vehicle that is necessary for the Holy Spirit to be given? Um, however, I want to quickly say that a person that's filled with the Holy Spirit and is a penitent believer and has received Jesus will want baptism. The two are somewhat inseparable, but it's not like it has to happen in a certain order. Because for sure here in, uh, in this event, uh, it's obvious that before baptism, the Holy Spirit was received. I think it's also important that we learn that the Holy Spirit is a gift from God and does not necessarily require a human channel to be received. I, I am of the persuasion that had Peter laid his hands on Cornelius, and at that point Cornelius would have received the Holy Spirit, somewhat like in the, uh, in, with the Samaritan event, perhaps the Christian Jews could have gotten the idea that, you know, Okay, so the Gentiles can receive the Holy Spirit, but it's got to kind of come through a Jew. You know, we've got to kind of be involved in this thing. Peter, Peter says that's not the case. I, I read his testimony in Acts 15. He says, God knows the heart, and he bears witness, and he gave them the Holy Spirit. He says that specifically. We had nothing to do with it. It came through God. And again, I would suggest that this tongues phenomenon that was... Um, witnessed here by Peter and the, and the rest was a verification that without question 
These people had experienced the reception of the Holy Spirit exactly like we did. Proof positive. There's no question. Peter could go to his friends and say, you know what? Cornelius and the Gentiles, they got exactly what we did. There's just no question. It was just carbon copy of what we, of what we experienced. And then the other account in Acts where we have a, uh, a speaking of tongues is the 12 Ephesian disciples in Acts 19, uh, verses 1 to 7. We have this account. And um, we have Paul evidently encountering 12 Ephesians here that had been with John some years previously and had been baptized by John, uh, apparently. Now, it's interesting that the writer Luke here of the book of Acts does not call them believers. He calls them disciples. Apollos had just been through Ephesus in the chapter before, and we know that Apollos was just preaching unto the baptism of John. He, that, that's all he knew until Aquila and Priscilla came and set him down and said, you know, you need to be further enlightened. And he happily was further enlightened, and he went on preaching the, the full gospel. But evidently these... Um, these Ephesians had just been baptized unto John's baptism. Anyway, uh, Paul, it seems, immediately is somewhat uh, suspect of their, uh, of their conversion, and he asks them very pointedly in verse 2, he says, Have you received the Holy Spirit since you believed? Has this happened to you? And it's interesting to me that they don't say yes, and they don't say no, but they say, we don't have a clue. We, we don't know who the Holy Spirit is. I mean, could you help us out here? We, we're not sure, actually. Um, it, it, we don't know. We don't know what you're talking about. And so then Paul um, teaches them, and he baptizes them, and it says, The Holy Ghost came on them, in verse 6, and they spoke in tongues. And again, it didn't stop there. It says, and they prophesied. All right? They spoke under divine influence. They spoke in tongue, and they prophesied. But why did this happen to these 12 Ephesians? I'm not sure that I can, I can rightly explain that. Um, again, as I, re, as I reflect on it, um, I'm not sure that we need to know why that happened. But indeed it did. And indeed, um, these people spoke with tongues. And um, it, it is an account we have. And it, it happened that way. It just did. As we reflect on these three examples, there's a few things that stand out. There is no exact pattern or timing. In each event, people repented, they were baptized, and they received the Holy Spirit, and there were signs, whether that was tongues, sharing hearts, prophecy, whatever it was, there was a sign that that took place, but the events never necessarily were the same. It was different in each account. One time it happened one way, another time it happened another. I think Hebrews 2, 1-4 shed some light on... What was transpiring here? Hebrews 2 4 reads like this. It says, God also bearing them witness, both with signs and wonders and with divers' miracles and gifts of the Holy Ghost. And the important part of that verse is this according to his own will. God does not have to explain to you and me why he chooses to work with in different individuals the way he does, it, it's according to his will. It's not, he does not have to reach down and say, now Dwight, here's why that took place. He don't have to give me the why. He just gave me the how. That's, that's what happened. I really believe that uh, the reason for tongues 
was to be a confirmation in some instances to the newly converted and sometimes to the crowd around them. But it is important to note that never in the book of Acts or in the epistles is it required as a confirmation of the new birth. Never. You cannot find a spot where it says this must take place to confirm the reception of the Holy Spirit. I also think it's interesting that I have never heard of a movement that required the sound of wind or the appearance of tongues of fire to um, confirm the Holy Spirit. Uh, you know why that is? I could stand up here and fake tongues today. I'd have a hard time faking fire and wind. That, that wouldn't happen. Now, I, I, I want to be, in all due respect, I am not saying, hear me clear here, I'm not saying that God could not for his own reason, according to his own will, if, if you please, have someone speak in tongues as a, as a, as a um, uh, confirmation of the reception of the Holy Spirit. I'm not saying that couldn't happen. But what I am saying is, don't ever say it's a requirement. It is not a requirement. No more than wind and fire is a requirement to confirm the reception of the Holy, of the Holy Spirit. And just for... The record. Let's look at some more baptisms in the book of Acts that I think is important so we understand we get another, a balanced view. All right? So in Acts 8, we have Philip preaching to the Ethiopian. Very straightforward. Ethiopian's writing, he's reading. Philip comes along, he says, Do you understand? The guy says, No, I don't. Philip jumps in the chariot, he, he, he helps him to understand. The Ethiopian says, Hey, there's a pond. Let's say I get baptized. Philip's like, sure, let's do it. They go down, they get baptized. What does the Ethiopian do? He crawls out of the water, he jumps in his chariot, and he goes on his way rejoicing. That's it. He goes back to Ethiopia, and I think he preaches the gospel. I think that's what he does. How about Acts 16? How about uh, Lydia, the seller of purple? It says that, uh, which worshiped God and heard us, and whose heart was opened, and she attended unto the things which were spoken of by Paul. And then it says, And when she was baptized in her household, she besought us, saying, If you have judged me faithful in the Lord, come to my house and abide there. And she constrained us. That seems pretty straightforward. She's baptized. She receives the Holy Spirit. And she says, Come on over, Paul. Stay at my house. Come on over and be my friend for a while. How about the jailer? Just a few, uh, few verses later in Acts 16. Paul says to him, Believe on the, on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved in your house. And they spoke unto him the word of the Lord and to all that were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night, washed their stripes and was baptized, he and all his straightway. And when they had brought him into his house, he set meat before them and rejoiced, believing in God with all his house. Straightforward. What was the sign? The sign was, he said, Paul, come on in. We're going to wash you up. We're going to give you food. That the man was a changed man, but he didn't speak in any tongues or anything really supernatural happened. He was baptized and he received the gift. And then we have the lowly verse in Acts 18.8 where we have the chief ruler of the synagogue, Crispus. And this is simply what it says about Crispus. He believed in the Lord with all his house and many of the Corinthians hearing believed and were baptized. Period. That's it. That's what we know. These conversions were nothing extraordinary. Except that people heard the gospel, they believed, they were baptized, they received the Holy Spirit, and not necessarily in that order. 
All right. As we have looked at these accounts, I would like you to just give you a few concluding thoughts here. When you look at the outpourings of the Holy Spirit here in the book of Acts, there's something that we must remember. The book of Acts is simply a book that is descriptive in nature. It is the Acts of the Apostles. That's the full name of the book. So what it is, is it is a historical account of this is what happened. Peter preached, this happened. Paul preached, this happened. The jailer was baptized and this happened. It is, it is, is a chronicle of what happened in the early church. All right? It is very descriptive in nature. It is a historical account. It's telling a story about the, the events of Christians following Jesus' ascension. It does not necessarily mean that what happened in the books of Acts necessarily needs to be repeated today. Uh, there's going to be many lessons we can learn. There can be many applications, but the precise duplication of the book of Acts, and you help me if I'm wrong here, I'd be really glad to hear your perspective if you disagree, but I see nowhere that that needs to necessarily be duplicated in 2017 to the T. All right? It's really no different than, than today. Uh, each of you has your story of how you came to Christ. Every one of you have a story. I, I, I'm not sure what all your stories are, but you each do. Some of our stories are much more dramatic than others. Okay? Uh, mine's not real dramatic. Um, you, you'd probably fall asleep if I told you about it. I could tell you about it in a paragraph. All right? Others would take a full three quarters of an hour to tell you about it. The point is, the man that took three quarters of, takes three quarters of an hour to tell about his conversion and his reception of the Holy Spirit, is he to expect that I need to experience that self-same thing? It would be ludicrous to think that. It's just not the case. God works with people on an individual basis, and it may happen to you one way and to me another, but the end result will be that we will receive the Holy Spirit and we will go on our way rejoicing. That will happen, Okay. It's really like this. Let's think about this as an example. Let's suppose that I decided that I'm going to go to Russell Stover's store there by Cabela's up there in Altana. And I'm going to waltz in there and I'm going to buy each of you a package of Russell Stover's candy. And I'm going to bring that candy home and I'm going to rack, wrap some in purple, some in yellow, some in blue, whatever. And I got some coconut cream, I got some pecans, I've got some walnuts, I've got some whatever. I just, I really went through the store and I got different things. And I wrapped them up in this paper and I gave one to Curtis and one to Yolanda and one to Alexa and one to Lynn. And they all got different things. All right, so they open it up and they say, hey, you know, Dwight likes Lynn more than he likes Curtis because he gave Lynn almonds and he gave Curtis coconut cream. And, you know, Lynn's was in yellow and Curtis's is in blue. And, and, and Curtis begins to believe that his, his isn't even Russell Stover's candy because it's not almonds. Again, ludicrous. But, but make the application. If God chooses to give the Holy Spirit to Cornelius and he chooses to have Cornelius for his own reason speak in tongues, that is his deal. He can do that. Should he choose that to do that today, again, it is his deal and he can do it. But if he chooses to give me the Holy Spirit in a very coconut cream way, in very bland paper, should, should I say, well, I didn't receive the Holy Spirit. I didn't. Because it's not like Cornelius. 
absolutely ludicrous. Remember that. You can receive the Holy Spirit. You will receive it if you call on Jesus, you repent, and you, you open yourself up to receive the Spirit. But it may not be real dramatic. It could be pretty, pretty unassuming. And for many of us, that's the way it will end up being. It'll be like Lydia. Or it'll be like Crispus. Or it'll be like the jailer. A lot more commonly than it will be like Cornelius or the others that we looked at. So again, I'm going to crash land this thing right here. Uh, not a very great conclusion. But my point is, what I want you to, to take away from this, simply be satisfied with the spirit that God has given you. It's the same one he gave me, and it's the same one he gave all of us. Be satisfied with it and work with the Holy Spirit. And the next time that I talk on this subject, and I'm not sure when that will be, I would like to bring it down and look at it a little bit more in contemporary real-world application. So uh, we'll see how that goes, and, and perhaps I should say how the Spirit leads.